Well, I'd love to uh, welcome everybody to this episode of Taking Stock. We are going to be following up on last week's episode regarding what is a share, but this time we're diving into kind of the second half, or maybe I should say the second 90% when it comes to the complicated process of settlement, what happens afterwards, what are FTDs, how can they be manipulated potentially uh, to result in you know, various benefits for some market participants and negative aspects for others? There's going to be quite a lot to cover, and it's going to be a complicated subject matter, but I am really excited to get into that with Jack of Spades. Before we hop right into that, I want to just briefly update about the YDRS database. We have been continually working on that, as always, every Sunday especially, but sort of a constant thing in the background all the time. And we've just crossed over 30% complete and audited uh, and supported in the database for U.S. traded companies, investor relations. And so just a reminder of what that's going to enable, we already have an investor relations email tool set up on the site with a variety of different templates available so that any investor in these companies can type in their ticker, their broker, uh, get a uh, shareable, simple email template, and also the direct contact information for their company so they can solicit information like DRS statistics or just get in touch if they want to uh, speak to their company directly, but they're not sure how or they never have before. So we're really excited about that. And uh, like I said, 30%, uh, we passed that milestone. Closing in quickly on a third complete, I bet you we'll be there when we speak next week. Vivek, did you have anything you wanted to touch on before we hop right into the uh, main topic? Uh, there's not much from me this past week. Uh, I've just been getting slammed with work, and I'm trying to take on every job I can get because uh, there's uh, there's some tasty dips that I'm trying to buy, as well as uh, you know, save for Christmas and all that. So, uh, got to take it where you can. But um, starting, I think, from this episode though. Uh, if you're catching this on a ver- one of the various podcast platforms out there, uh, you'll be hearing our new intro and outro music, which is finally done and ready. Um, so, yeah, keep an eye out for that. Come go and check us out on all the uh, podcast platforms. Um, I think there's a there'll be a link tree somewhere, anywhere that you look at these uh, uh, spaces, these calls, these chats. Um, so, yeah. Well, that's it for me for this week. And I guess to piggyback off that, you know, if you are listening here on Twitter Live or on a Twitter recording down the line, uh, check out the uh, the podcast feed. The This new intro, uh, I'll just spoil it right now, that was put together by a Wooch, a, you know, a fellow DRS advocate, made a lot of music, and we're really glad that he's interested to support this podcast series and uh, just help... Uh, help make it a little bit more approachable, a little bit more fun. So it's a great intro and outro. Go check that out. All right, Jack. So uh, maybe we can get started right here. Uh, for folks that um, that are listening, we have, I, or we'll have in the nest, a link for some slides that Jack's prepared. It's very similar to last week. Those, of course, are going to be in the show notes for everyone else. Great. Uh, so, hi everyone. This is Jack. We're going to continue our conversation uh, from last time, and we're going to explore settlement and FTDs in regards to aging. We're going to talk about taxes, but from a tax minimization perspective, 
And then we're briefly going to talk about put call clarity. And then at the very end, I'm going to try to reframe everything. And everything includes the stuff we talked about before, which was uh, voting rights, distortion of one share, one vote as well. So we're going to reframe everything, but we're going to reframe it under accounting rules. And um, there's, a, there's a, a few slides that I prepared. There's an executive summary. And then there's a slide on mark-to-market accounting. We can come to those at the very end. So for now, we can just jump uh, right into the details. So the first topic is the aging of an FTD. And what I mean by that is how old is an FTD? So before, before, before we, we hop in, what is, a, yeah. what is an FTD, Jack? Good, good question. Sorry. So an FTD stands for failure to deliver, which means when you buy shares from your broker, they are supposed to be delivered to you in what's known as T plus two. So today plus two business days. If it's not delivered to you within that duration, it is now a failure to deliver. Good? Good. Okay. Okay. So now, now we're going to get into a rule that I'm guessing most people haven't really read about, but um, it, se it sets up the story for where I want to go with this. So, there's this rule, it's called 15C33. At the very bottom of the page on this particular slide, I give you a link to the actual rule, um, but it's quite complex, it's a lot of legal language. And instead of going through that, I thought it would be easier to just find a few quotes that kind of talk about the rule, um, particularly the key parts that, that I want to focus on. So um, the first link, this is a quote from, um, an SEC commissioner, commissioner named uh, Pollock, who, after he retired, they asked him to do an analysis on um, settlements. And we're gonna, his report gets used a lot. It comes up often. It's actually the first two quotes here. So first quote is, under this rule, the SEC treats securities from the clearing corporation for customer-related transactions as the equivalent of a fail to deliver less than 30 days regardless of age. So that's, that's quote number one. Quote number two is citing the Pollock report. And I'm just going to focus on the bolded part. And what they say is they say paragraph D of that rule requires that a broker must take steps to obtain cash and excess margin shares that are more than 30 days overdue. But apparently the SEC has determined not to enforce this requirement with regards to uh, shares receivable from the NSEC. And then the last piece just to call out is the last part of this FINRA quote, which basically says that if there were to be larger persistent fails to deliver conditions at the clearing corporations, they would be covered by the closeout rules because the rule focuses on persistent rather than temporary fails to deliver. So th this is all just to set up where we're going. And here would be a good time just to mention that in all of the academic literature, in virtually all of the academic literature, and this includes like stuff from the GTCC and SEC, FTDs are not a big deal. FTDs don't happen often. FTDs are not really persistent. So the main takeaway is at 30 days, FTDs are persistent, but we have examples that show the rules aren't necessarily followed. And that's a good segue into the next slide, which is about the threshold list. And the big question to ask is, how is Overstock able to be on the threshold list for 500 plus days? So Overstock was a company that was heavily shorted in the early 2000s. 
and at some point ended up on this threshold list. And I give you a formal definition of what it is, but simplistically, when there's an excessive amount of FTDs, the security ends up on the threshold list, and being on the threshold list is supposed to make it harder to short and um, thus clean up the failures to deliver. But something being excessively on the threshold list says the rules are not followed, the rules are ineffective, or something else is going on. We already know that the DTCC, NSCC, says that it's not their job to police, and I shared a quote um, from last time about that. Leslie Bonney, who did a who has a research paper about um, strategic failures to deliver, her conclusion is basically firms just don't want to force buy-ins of other people. They just don't want to get that. Um, they just don't want to get that reputation. The prior slide that I just talked about shows quotes that suggest the rules aren't followed. So we have all of that going on. But I want to introduce a new reason that the rules are also not followed that. I haven't really seen discussed before. And it's, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull from a few sources. It was something I came up with mostly on my own. I then discovered Dr. T and uh, this other academic, Asmar, kind of came up with something similar. And then I discovered uh, someone in the 70s submitted a comment letter that kind of says a lot of what I'm about to say. I just group a few things together in a way that I haven't seen before. So first we need to talk about what mark-to-market accounting is. So mark-to-market accounting is just taking the present value of something. So if Apple is worth $100 today and I buy one share of it and I mark it to market, it's worth $100. If tomorrow the price changes and it's, it's $90, I mark it to market, it's worth $90. So the takeaway is it's just the value as of that day. And I, I give another quote from the DTCC. That's about their policy. I'm not going to read that. I just wanted to kind of highlight the bolded part uh, from the Dr. T and Asmar quote. And basically, and what did they say? They say, the DTCC generally renets settlement failures. That is, failures are reset to zero each morning, and only the end-of-day fails are recorded. So that's great. So let's now see what uh, this guy Richard Gregg says. And Richard Gregg, I forgot... Um, what position he actually had, but I believe he was in government, not like um, in the SEC, but another um, government agency. And there was a comment letter that he wrote, which was talking about the treatment of um, treasury fails and, and, and the aged treasury fails. And I'm just going to read the bolded parts. So the first part is he says, you also represent the GSEC requires netting members to confirm their trading obligations and make daily mark-to-market adjustments. Then we go to the last uh, bulleted part, and just the, the slight lead-in is, based on these representations, you assert that for the purposes of capital and customer protection rules, netting members should be allowed to consider the settlement date for the fail to be the most recent business day for which the fail has been marked to market. In effect, you request that netting members be allowed to treat fails as unaged, i.e. one business day old, for the purpose of capital and customer protection. So that's a huge statement. He is basically saying FTDs are always one day old. FTDs don't age. And I'm just going to continue running with that into my next statement, which is 
if I'm being honest, it's quite an absurd statement. But basically, as long as the NSCC is the counterparty, the FTD can never be persistent because FTDs are not really a problem, can be stated as a fact, as the FTDs are always less than 30 days by definition. So just to recap this, FTDs don't age, FTDs are not a problem, FTDs are not persistent, are true statements just due to technical nuances. So that that's that that was the mark to market and aging piece. So let's stop there, Chive. Is there anything that um, I can maybe clarify, go over again? Maybe you have a question about before we get to taxes? Because I want to make sure definitely. we stop. Definitely. I think it'd be well worth just kind of recovering in brief so we make sure that we're all still on the same page as we keep moving forward. So the first thing that we went over here, just to recap, so FTDs, you know, uh, number one, tend to take place when a given share order, either from retail or otherwise, and I suppose it doesn't even have to be a share, it can be other assets like treasuries, but point being they're not delivered within that T plus two window that is typically expected from our market today. And you also mentioned this um, Rule 15C3 that takes note that if those FTDs happen to reach 30 days old, then the broker is you know, has an imperative to um, perform some additional tasks, whether or not that's you know outreach or bookkeeping. But they need to settle these FTDs once they reach a certain age, and that you know that sounds very reasonable. In fact, I feel like it should be less than 30 days. But at least the first thing I wanted to clarify is that the right understanding. That that is absolutely the right understanding. So at 30 days, a different some rules should kick in to resolve those FTDs. However, we we have we have quotes that are saying that doesn't happen. And what what I when I first saw these quotes, my question was, why don't they happen? Not just that they don't happen, but what is the what's the rule? What's the mechanics on why they don't happen? And I believe the argument is it's because of mark to market accounting. And then that brings us into the second thing, the second couple slides that you covered a few moments ago, which looks to claim that the DTC is going to consider, consider these FTDs to only be a day old in their own um, when they're evaluating the FTDs, which would kind of vibe with your quotes stating that they don't perceive it to be a major issue. And that being said, those these 30-day rules... Um, although perhaps sensible in theory, if that is correct, then these are never going to come into an application and brokers won't have that same responsibility to close uh, ongoing FTDs. Um, is that is that what you're uh, kind of positing here? That, that's absolutely correct. There are rules. We just don't happen to get to the rules actually being enforced due to some nuances. Now, let me know if we're going to cover this later before we move on. But one thing that I hear quite a lot about, just sort of in the general community, is this idea that an FTD can, you know, maybe it won't be closed, but it could be covered. And then that cover can FTD. And people talk about rolling over this obligation over a period of time. And I've even uh, heard, I believe, that this is another explanation for, you know, an ongoing period of time where, FTDs are allowed to continually exist and, um, let's say, renew because of this cover versus close 
uh, distinction. Do you have any commentary on that? Is that related to this in any way? It, there is a relation to this. I don't quite go into the detail, but we, we can just say this, that there are sham reset transactions and this is ultimately what you're getting at. So I think I think there was this, like, it was called the Options Risk Alert or something in 2013 that the SEC put out, and they talked about various ways that you could close your FTD. I'm, I'm, I'm doing quotes here that you can't see, but you can close your FTD but be, by basically resetting the counter. And it was using options, I think, was what they talked about. And actually, um, bring, bring this up when we get to either the tax section or the options section. Because there's an interesting way that I can connect all of these. Um, but I don't, I nowhere else do I talk about the, the difference between cover and close. Do you happen to have a good definition off the top of your head? Well, I would say, and I don't have a good citation for this at this moment, but off the top of my head, the distinction would be um, let's say that there is a, uh, let's call it maybe a, this is share call it synthetic in this nebulous middle space where if a retail person or any person buys you know this given asset uh it's reflected in an account but their their uh broker that they're doing business with you know they've got that t plus two to actually um commit the back end paperwork now let's ha- think to ourselves uh okay. closing might be um the broker has completed that process and covering might be the broker has completed that process, you know, through its own purchase, but that purchase has its own T plus two window. Mm-hmm. And so there's a rolling obligation, which is created uh, through the recurrent covering mm-hmm. um, kind of yeah. a meaty definition there, but that's the distinction I draw. Okay. So I don't have a citation for this either, but the way that I always think about it is covering is just, economically making them whole closing is truly closing out the position and i'm saying it that way i like that uh, let's come back to this when we get to the yeah put a pin in that i just was curious if it was related and i hear that it is but we're getting to it all right sounds Mm -hmm. good anything else that you want to hit on with aging of ftds I think I think I'm set. What about you, Bibic? Is there anything that you wanted to clarify? No, I think you guys uh, got it pretty well covered. Um, uh, I'm trying to think about how the obligation where obligations warehouse fits into any, everything, because um, that's just a hot catchphrase that gets thrown around a lot. But yeah, I'm no, ex- I'm no expert on that. That that could be a great topic for a future time. For sure. Yeah, it's a big enough topic. It could fill a whole warehouse. Anyway. <laughs> um, with that, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I haven't got anything anything else to add, so I think we can move on to these, uh, what was it, uh, oh, taxes. Yeah, we're going to go to taxes. And for, for each of these sections, I think they're – they're going to get progressively more complex. And I, I did not understand this stuff the first time I ever read it. So um, my hope is you, you guys walk away with just more than you knew yesterday. And feel free to reach out to me. i happy to clarify whatever I can down the road. 
So here are the two big statements I kind of want to make. There are ways to minimize taxes, and I'm going to show you two ways to do that with wash sales and shorting against the box. And the big point is you can strategically take losses or defer gains, but most of retail can't take advantage of this. So first we'll do wash sales. So I give you a formal definition of what a wash sale is. I'm just going to gloss over that and give you my own definition, which is you can't sell something for a loss, buy it back uh, within 30 days, and write off that loss. So just to give you a real example, Apple today is at $100. Tomorrow it drops to $90. I can't close that position, buy a new share of Apple at $90, and write off that $10 as a loss. That's what the wash sale says you can't do. However, there are ways that you can potentially circumvent the wash sale rules, and it all comes down to you can't repeatedly buy and sell substantially similar securities. So on um, the second wash sale page slide, I give you a few examples of how you can potentially circumvent this. And I'll, I'll just uh, throw it out there that this is stuff you have to talk to a CPA about. This is not like my financial advice. I'm just pointing out the opportunities for abuse. So first example, let's pretend I, um, I have shares of SPY and I sell it for a loss. I could instantly go buy IVV or VOO and go long, and that would technically not be a wash sale. And everything I just mentioned are S&P index or S&P 500 index tracking funds. So they technically should behave very similar. So that's one way to circumvent this. Another way to circumvent this, which is not on the slides, is if a company offers multiple classes of shares. So for example, um, Google or Alphabet has um, two, two classes of shares. They have GOOG and they have GOOGL. I could sell GOOG for a loss and then go buy the other one, and that's not triggering a wash sale. And that example I just gave you is something Steve Ballmer uh, recently did with uh, BHP and Shell, and there, there's even a write-up about it in, in ProRepublica. And it's basically like, here are tax loopholes that the rich can take advantage of. So those are two simple ways that you can circumvent the wash sale rules. Another way, and we'll get to this uh, later, is through put call parity. And then the third way to circumvent it is through mark-to-market -market accounting, which we'll come back to at the end. Just know there are ways to circumvent the rules. So we talked about wash sales. Another... Before we move on, I hope you don't mind if I interrupt you there real quick. No, not at all. I'm quite curious, you know, from these uh, from these examples you kind of just ran through, especially with this, um, you know, investing in given tracking funds or even put call parity. You mentioned that retail investors don't necessarily have the same access to these loopholes for a more tax advantage status. And off the cuff from these, it seems like a regular person could perform these. Are you mostly talking about an economy of scale where a retail investor is just not going to be able to derive nearly as much advantage from these loopholes? There's, there's two elements to this. So one is 
Um, Okay, there's a few elements to this. One is the risk associated with doing it. So according to, this, this is a great question. So according to BlackRock, the first example I gave you with the um, the buying and selling of ETFs, they claim that's the most risky to trigger a wash sale. So first, the first issue you potentially run into is the risk and what's the chance you really trigger a wash sale. The second risk you run into is um I don't, I don't know the proper terminology, but regular um, traders, like, like non-professional traders can only write up, can only deduct $3,000 in losses. So kind of the economy of scale doesn't, it, it kind of, the, the economy of scale kind of impacts that where I can't necessarily take a $50,000 loss like Steve Bonner really can. Um, and then the third piece is I think it's just complex to do as a retail trader, but if you had, I'll just get to this now. If you have what's known as trader status or you're uh, a big entity like a short hedge fund, you just operate under a different set of rules, which is mark to market accounting. And everything I just talked about with wash sales and, and the caveats to it just don't exist. So you can take advantage of wash sales. You can take advantage of shorting against the box, which we'll talk about in a sec. Does that, does that clarify a bit? Absolutely, it does. Yeah, thanks so much for that. Sure, sure. Gr great question. And chime in with all of this because I, I, I think this is super complex, and I don't necessarily know what parts I I could articulate better. Um. Okay. So, so we just did wash sales. There's another thing, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about this, but it's called shorting against the box. And shorting against the box is basically where you are long and short at the same time for the same security. So just think you're long 100 shares of Apple, you're short 100 shares of Apple at the same time. Economically speaking, wherever that stock moves, you're, you're, you're neutral. You, you haven't gained or lost because the gains or losses from your longs are offset by the gains or losses from your shorts. And um, let's see. This is, this is a hedging strategy that was really about uh, to help defer taxes. And just to give you a little more background on this, this is what executives used to do when they were trying to sell the shares that they owned while still at the company. So they would short their own shares of the company. And sometimes in um, shareholder documents, proxy statements, you'll see like there's a no hedging rule or something like that. That's what this is really about. It's it's this. So that that those are the two examples of um, tax minimization strategies. And the big takeaways, just to reiterate it, are there are ways to minimize taxes. There are rules, but the rules can be circumvented. The rules are weakly defined, and as we just mentioned, um, retail and everyone else operates under a different set of tax rules. And everyone else can take advantage of more favorable rules in this sense. And I wanted to close out the, the tax section by starting to tie things back together with what we talked about in the beginning. So the very first topic we spoke about was voting, the distortion of one share, one vote. And we even got into empty voting. Um, I have a quote, and it's from the same, it's from the same research paper that I shared before. And what it says is it says empty voting by institutions 
is a close cousin to hedging techniques widely used by insiders, zero-cost callers, variable prepaid forwards, and the like, by which managers and controlling shareholders retain formal ownership of shares while shedding some or most of their economic ownership. In the U.S., these strategies have typically been driven by managers' desire to shed risk while deferring taxes rather than by uh, vote-buying motives. So that clearly shows an intersection of distorting one share, one vote, and tax implications. So that that's the tax section. So let's stop there. Baby Pichives, any questions? Anything I can try to clarify? Well, this isn't so much a question, but something I, I think you cover briefly in your slides that I want to highlight for anyone listening and not uh, familiar with deferring taxes. It's not as though those taxes are something that's fully avoided. But what's important about this idea is that taxes that are deferred are essentially to be paid later. And that's going to allow uh, parties, companies, groups that can take advantage of these um you know, these filing techniques to have a greater access to their economic uh, influence and ability today to take whatever actions they would like and, you know, presumably uh, earn more so that when it does come time to pay those deferred taxes, it's going to represent a smaller percentage of their net worth and be a lower hit to them overall. Uh, Another way that as the days go by and years go by, do we see prolonged and growing economic disparity? Just wanted to kind of, <laughs> I've got bias in there, but that's my um, black and white overview. Just folks are aware of what that kind of represents. That is an excellent way to, to say what that is. That's absolutely what it is. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm pretty astonished. Like I thought you had to move to Ireland or the Cayman Islands or whatever to, to avoid taxes, but it turns out you can... T- arrange the numbers how like in a special way and it it yeah just cancels each other out to the point where you don't really have to pay anything well it's, you'll pay uh, just later <laughs> you'll pay later and then unfortunately in the u.s with derivatives they're just not um the rules on how they're taxed are ambiguous and they're they're loosely defined and because of that people just take advantage of gray areas and that's kind of what i'm trying to highlight which is there are rules, but there aren't really rules. Yeah, just kind of interesting ways of working around the rules. Mm-hmm. And, and we're, we're going to get to another way to kind of circumvent the rules when we get to foot call. So, so I'd love to also just expand a bit, I think, on this um, empty voting quote that you've pulled up. I think it's fascinating and concerning that we see, you know, a study published through Yale that is stating essentially these tax deferment techniques are essentially being used by managers for, you know, selfish economic end. Although there is this, you know, through the same abusive method, this ability for shareholder democracy to also be completely uh, sidestepped. And that is almost stated by them as an aside, uh, rather than you know a real cause for concern. Uh, I can definitely understand keeping emotion out of a paper, but that is uh, just so interesting to me. And I'm really glad that we're digging into the underlying mm, techniques that can lead to this sort of potential abuse. I mean, I'm not going to 
call anyone by name, but this is a smoke and potentially fire scenario. It, it is, and um, at the very end, if so, re, re- ask me about the um, the sham reset transactions, but also ask me about if I can connect it to Madoff, and I'll try to connect everything to Madoff too, because there there are just some there are some weird things out there. That that's all I'll say. I got a list. I got a list to go cool. over at the end. Cool. Okay, so I guess I guess we'll move on to put call parity. So this is this was one of the most important things for me to get a handle on because once I got a handle on this, I started to really understand other ways that I could, if I wanted to, abuse the system. And I also think this is this is this is the foundational element to have a seat at the table to talk financial engineering. And I'm going to try to keep this as simple as possible, but just note options can get insanely complex and we're just scratching the surface. So put call parity says that the following mathematical equation exists. And this would be a good one to put um, up on the nest if you can. It's slide 15 in my document. So what it says is it says, S plus P equals C plus B. And that's 100 shares of a stock plus a put at strike K at expiration date D is equivalent to a call at strike K expiration date D plus a zero coupon bond. And what this is essentially saying is you can construct two portfolios with identical economic value. So just to say that slightly differently, the left-hand side of the equation equals the right-hand side of the equation. Those are two different portfolios. So I could buy 100 shares of Apple, or I could buy a call, sell a put, and buy a bond of Apple, and I'm going to economically have the exact same payoff as if I just bought those shares. Um, the formula that I gave you, this is just for background information, is for... Um, for European style options, there's a similar formula for American style options, and also it gets more complex if you throw uh, dividends into the mix. But just keeping it simply, there's a mathematical equation that dictates the relationship of the underlying to options. So the next two slides that I have give pictorial representations of um, payoff diagrams. So the first one I have are these standard payoff diagrams, which basically say, if you're long a share, this is what the diagram looks like. If you're short shares, this is what it looks like. And then it does the same for calls and puts. Fine. The next slide is the one that's more interesting. So once you understand that you have this put call parity, you enter the realm of what are known as synthetic positions. And basically, you can rearrange that formula that I shared to mimic the payoff of being long or short a stock. So the example that I chose to show you was how being long a call and short a put pictorially will be identical to being long a stock. And just note in the formula that I gave, technically there's the zero coupon bond. From everything that I read online when they show pictures, um, 
they often just drop that out of there. But technically, the bond is supposed to be an elephant. And then the last picture I give you is just a snapshot that shows other ways that you can create synthetic positions. Um, so just, just one fun fact uh, before I close out the call parody, um, and I'm throwing this in just for um, since there was a lot of noise around the dividend with uh, GameStop. If you short regularly, you owe the dividend. However, if you synthetically short, so through options, you do not owe a dividend. So just to sort of summarize put call parity, if you can replicate a portfolio, which put call parity shows you can, then you can replicate an offsetting position, thus impacting voting rights, one share, one vote, and also have tax minimization implications. The prior quote that we shared that we were just talking about mentions um, hedging techniques. It says like zero cost collars, prepaid forwards. That's what this is all about. It's taking advantage of put call parity to hedge. So that wraps up that wraps up everything that I had in terms of the detailed slides. I'm just going to jump straight to, to my closing statement on mark-to-market accounting of reframing everything. And then, then we can open this up to questions and even get to um, more stuff on the call there. So just to reframe everything we talked about under mark-to-market accounting, it's this. FTDs do not age due to mark-to-market accounting. Therefore, FTDs are not really a problem, which leads to some rules not being enforced. Shorting contributes to FTDs which we know can distort one share, one vote. And we also know that with taxes, if you have mark-to-market accounting rules in place, there's no concept of wash sales. There's no concept of shorting against the box, which now means hedging is more doable for non-retail. So I know that was a ton of stuff to take in. I'm hoping, I'm hoping you guys walk away with, as I said, a little bit more than, than you knew yesterday. Um, so let, let, let's get to questions. Let's get to maybe expanding on some things. So I know we had some topics we identified during the call to hop into the end, but I, I'm not ready for those quite yet because I am. Uh, I just want to ask some follow-up questions about the idea of these synthetic derivative positions and some of the downstream implications of that. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, combined with what we went over last week, I, uh, f- so I first want to share an understanding that you know, not only can these uh, portfolios be created to, you know, for a synthetic position, you know, portfolios built of derivatives to have a given impact on the underlying security. So that's, you know, that's part one. But what are the upper bounds to that? I mean, ultimately, a, a firm that's looking to simulate a given portfolio through these derivatives, they need to uh, sell the calls to someone or uh, you know, buying the position from something like is that correct? And part the part B of that question would be: Is all of this going to show up on the options chain, which is visible to retail investors? So uh, I'm curious about the um, potential disclosure, and then also the uh, upper end, because otherwise, I mean, if there is no upper end, then um, it, <laughs> well. The, there would just be a, uh, quite a lot of other sort of price impact and material impact. So uh, what do you think about those two items? It's a great question. Um, I don't know what the upper end is. All I know is 
you can mathematically create an identical position and you can mathematically create a similar position. So if you can create a similar position that fits in with your uh, risk profile, maybe you don't hedge it all the way, but you hedge like 90% of it away. So that's why I say I don't know what the upper bounds of this is. Um, another way of thinking about what I, what I kind of said is finance is really about cash flows. It's about being able to predict your cash flows. And if you can predict your cash flows, you can maybe replicate your cash flows, and that's what hedging is. Does that help in terms of the upper bound piece? I'd say that it does. And ultimately, we're, you know, these derivatives are ones that, you know, these are have to follow the normal, normal rules. Like if I wanted to open a, um, you know, a long options position or a short options position, we're assuming that I'd have to go through the same setup, uh, the same buying or selling process. And, you know, I suppose in theory could build one of these portfolios myself. Is that all correct as well? That That's absolutely correct. Um, so, so the examples I gave are just talking about calls and puts, but um, the takeaway should be you can, you, using financial instruments, you can replicate other portfolios. So this example is talking just about calls and puts, but you could introduce other financial instruments and do that too. I think in one of the links, let me give it, uh, yeah, in, in the financial engineering and put call parity slide, the last link I gave is actually about coupon stripping and like bond coupon stripping. So b- bonds, bonds sometimes have like payment schedules that go with it. You can actually break up what, a, what that is into its components. So it's like the bond and then it's the coupon element. So what I'm trying to say is you can always deconstruct Got it. Okay, making me think about ETFs at that point. Um, exactly. This, as I said, this is scratching the surface. I just kind of wanted to introduce what I think is like, what for me a big aha moment, which was you can replicate anything. And my assumption would be, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the answer to my other question about disclosure earlier would essentially be that that's going to depend on you know the whims of the. Uh, the institution taking the position because they could seek private arrangement with the same mathematical instruments outside of the public market. And then even, you know, the Bloomberg terminals would not be able to see uh, those kinds of positions. Is that uh, your understanding as well? Oh, that's spot on. So they could definitely appear in the regular old reporting, but there's all this other stuff and there's all this other way that they can they could definitely be taking advantage of swaps. They could take advantage of flex options. There's a, there's there's probably more things than we even know about. Yeah, I just appreciate us um, definitely putting the uh, the eye on that, the dot on that eye, I should say. Uh, my last thing I just want to follow up on was about this uh, this dividend. It's not so much a question, just a realization moment. As I mean, of course. A short a seller being responsible to deliver a dividend. This is something that I think a lot of um, our audience is going to be familiar with. But the concept of a synthetic position that which is short on a company that has a dividend, 
you know, that synthetic is not connected to an actual share. It's just economic influence. So, of course, it doesn't owe one. I just had never made that connection. So I really appreciate your mentioning it here. Sure. And l- let me just expand on that. And this is this is pure conjecture. Um, you buy a share of Apple and uh, a market maker fulfills that. They, they give you the, the shares. What they do on the other end is they short it at the same time. So they're, they're effectively neutral. They're taking an, they're taking an offsetting position. Um, however, they could just do the same thing with synthetic, uh, with a synthetic position now. So that's the real reason I, I wanted to include it. It was to kind of hint that perhaps there's a lot of synthetic hedging going on. We just don't know. Hmm. Yeah, that definitely uh, opens up some some crazy questions in my mind that maybe we, that are not entirely related, uh, but maybe on a future uh, episode we can wonder about what happens, like in a, if there's a cash dividend, for example, uh, going out, and we see, um, you know, what what is being delivered uh, and what isn't uh, in the in these sorts of scenarios. But that's that's a whole other question. Let me let me hop right to. Um, some of the other items that you mentioned to bring up at the end. So the first thing I brought up earlier in the call was this distinction between covering an FTD uh, and closing an FTD, this, this concept of rolling forward. Uh, So let's touch again on that. Okay. So, so we talked about how you could, of course, you know, um, actually close the position, but alternatively you could just hedge the position by synthetically entering. That's that's where I wanted to go with that. That was the book called Paradise. So does that make sense? Yes. What about you, Bivik? Yeah, I think I'm following along. I'm pretty smooth when it comes to this kind of uh, nitty gritty market mechanic stuff. This, it just this, is, this took a long time for me to really grasp. I I'm saying it simply right now, but it, it took a long time to grasp. It, yeah, I really need to see payoff diagrams and need to see things in that sense. So, I, as I said, I just want you to walk away with knowing a little bit more than, than you do at the start. It's yeah, I mean, it's high, highlighting for me again as well. Just like how much the kind of lack of transparency um, that exists in the market, um, like there's so much that can be done if there was some transparency going on. <laughs> And retail traders would be, or, you know, household investors, individual investors, um, like they would be so much more empowered to make more informed choices if if they knew what was going on under the hood in, in you know, the off, um, off market exchanges and dark pools and everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so much of it's keeping kept secret. Um, and it, we keep seeing these effects, almost like gr- gravity or the wind. You can't see it, but you see the effects of it, and you, you're pretty sure it's there. And you're digging out these sources that are all, you know, claiming the same stuff um, and bringing up evidence towards it. But uh, it's still somehow elusive. But I guess that's partly down to um, the kind of the cost of doing business or the co- you know the fees associated with uh, being caught out for mm-hmm. uh, the the uh, tax wash sales um, is that mm-hmm. what they're called yeah um, 
yeah, so, I, I, talk about I'm being sure. caught out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I know the, the only other thing to that we had covered earlier to bring up was, you know, the thing about being caught up, caught out is Madoff and how that can possibly tie in. Now, for those sure. unfamiliar, of course, uh, Bernie Madoff, architect of the Ponzi scheme, um, prolific financial figure, uh, revered <laughs> in in history. Jack, how does he work into this? Okay, so you're getting, you're getting a little bit of freeform thought here, so this might not be super eloquent, but I, I wrote a few notes to myself. Um, the first thing to mention is in that twenty three in that twenty thirteen options risk alert. If you if you do like control F, you'll see the word um, conversion or reverse conversion. Technically, all that that is is taking advantage of put call parity, and it's a scenario where you maybe um, sell the stock but buy the puts and the call something. It, it's taking advantage of that equation. So I just want you guys to know conversions for a second, and conversions are simply they could just be a hedging technique as well. Bernie Madoff was accused of doing what's known as split strike conversions. Split strike conversions are are hedging techniques that have voting right implications and tax minimization uh, implications as well. So that's my Bernie Madoff connection. Um, Hopefully that made sense and that wasn't too rambly. Um, But I I wanted to shift to something else that I wrote down also which goes back to the close versus cover uh, and sham reset piece. And I'm going to try to tie this into GameStop. Um, So in January when GameStop sneezed, I'm just going to make up numbers. It it went up in price. It went to 100. It went to 200. It went to 300, blah, blah, blah. What if everyone who was short closed their shorts actually closed their shorts and then just opened brand new short positions at that new price. That is a wash sale, which is what I talked about earlier, that they, of course, can take advantage of so they can write off that loss. And conceptually, they kind of know that the stock is going to eventually drop. All that they've really done is they've reestablished their entry point while minimizing their taxes. Hopefully that made sense. Yeah, My so they can they can oh, regulate sorry, the taxes, but not the short position. Is that right? They well, they can they defer the taxes. They 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 still have their short position. They've just economically adjusted it so that they can now write off some taxes with it. Now. Damn. So I would wonder how long you can, so I don't actually know, I don't know this, but I don't know how long you can uh, hold over that credit, you know, air quotes credit uh, that is deferred for future tax years. Is that just for one year? Is that for multiple years? No, I don't know the answer to that, but uh, that theory uh, could be impacted by that. It's more, you, you have to take advantage of it now. So you, you're going to be writing those taxes off for this year or that loss off for this year. Well, it shows an opportunity in a vulnerable environment for an exposed company to uh, make it quite a lot easier for them to stay afloat 
uh, you know, hypothetically taking advantage of that sort of situation. I, I can absolutely see. Now, we may never know if those kinds of techniques were used, but more important to know that they are possible. So I, I definitely appreciate the hypothetical there. Mm -hmm. And um, although although for the bulk of it, in, until just now, we talked about watch sales and shorting against the box as where you're going long and then kind of shorting later on. I th and, and at the very end, we talked about doing it in the opposite where you're shorting first. I think the way more interesting way to look at things is if you short first. And in one of my Reddit posts, I actually theorized how I would sell or box uh, a company if I took advantage of shorting against the box. But that's way that's way too complex for for, for now. I'm sure we'll get to it one day, Jack. I'm really glad we had you back on to cover all this. Um, I'd love to, you know, we got several listeners here. I'd love to see if any of them have any questions. You know, while we're all listening and while we've got you right here today. No questions, of course, can just mean that you were extremely thorough and they're probably elbow deep in reading through some of the source material. That's possible. Um, I, I tend to think this is just some really complex stuff and people need time to digest it. So as I said earlier, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, happy to clarify whatever I can. Yeah, I, I didn't mention earlier, but um, I think we ran out of space in the nest, but I have put all the links uh, in the replies to this space, and it'll be in the show notes for anyone listening uh, on a podcast uh, app. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of information. It's a big old dense chunk of data. And so many sources to back up with as well, which I love to see. Always love a source. Well, that's what we're all about here at Taking Stock. So, well, thanks then very much, Jack. Thanks, everyone, for coming in. Thanks to all our future listeners. Uh, you can, of course, check out our various projects, drsgme.org, ydrs.org. Um, I'm sure all those links will be in the show notes as well. So carry on, everybody. Hope it's a great week up ahead. Yeah, have a good week, everyone. Catch you next week. <laughs> <laughs>